0: Well, usually at this point in the service, we will uh, have a children's sermon, have an Old Testament lesson, a New Testament, we're not doing all that today. <laughs> today is different. Uh, today, what we're going to be doing is talking about one particular thing. We're going to talk about a, a painful healing, and we're going to do that by looking at a story within a story, and then an unusual gift, and an unnatural response. That's what we're looking at today, and we're going to do this all by looking at the person we've been looking at, actually, for the last several weeks, but if you haven't been here, I'm sure you've heard of him anyway. His name is David. He is the guy who was a shepherd, was out shepherding his father's sheep when God sent a prophet to him to anoint him, mark him out as the one who'd been chosen to be the next king, even though he wasn't in the line of the current king of Israel. And then he grows up uh, a little bit more. We see him defeating the giant Goliath because he's trusting in God. We see how um, that continues to be a pattern of his life, that in story after story that we've been looking at with David, He's constantly got his eyes on God, spiritually. He's looking at who God is and what he's doing, and therefore, even though everybody else might be acting one way, David seems to do something else, and he always making the right turn and the right decision. Everybody else is making the wrong ones. Until last week. And last week, we looked at a particular story in the life of David where he said that this was the time where he actually looked down. He looked down physically because he was up on the palace roof, and he looks down, and he sees Bathsheba bathing. And this temptation, we see, causes a whole chain of events as he falls into temptation, and uh, we see him committing adultery with Bathsheba, who, since she's married and now she becomes pregnant, he has to you know, cover this up somehow. And after his initial elaborate plans don't work, he ends up having her husband Uriah killed. But he tries to do that through, you know, he's the king. He can just do this through battle, and so he can cover that up too. Of course, for that to work, there are several other innocent bystanders who end up having to die as well. Who had nothing to do with all this, and yet still David's sin affects them. And so, that's what we were looking at last week. That was the problem, but at the end of all of it, we said... You know, it looks like David has gotten away with it. Nobody knows. He seems the cover-up has worked. But, God was displeased with what David had done. This week, we're going to look a little bit after that. And we start with the story within a story. So, we're kind of in the middle of the story of David, and we have this prophet named Nathan who comes to him. This is in 2 Samuel chapter 12. And I just want to read you the story within a story, because this story. So good. As the Lord sent Nathan to David. When he came to him, he said there were two men in a certain town, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb he had bought. He raised it, and it grew up with him and his children. It shared his food, drank from his cup, and even slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now a traveler came to the rich man, but the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare a meal for the traveler who had come to him. Instead, he took the ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man and prepared it for the one who had come to him. This is the story. This is the story within a story. Now, we're going to actually be looking this morning at... uh, God's right to judge. And it's something that people don't want to hear about. In fact, usually when you hear about the judgment of God, people will push back on this and say, you know, I don't, I don't like hearing about that. I don't like hearing that God has a right to judge me. I mean, a lot of times what people think of is that there's some end judgment date where you're going to be held accountable for all these rules you didn't know about. Or maybe if you did know about them, you didn't agree with them anyway. And so why is, okay, Before we get into all this, Tim Keller talks about this idea in a way I think is really helpful and is going to be really helpful as we go into this particular passage. And that is, he says, you know, just saying laying aside that God who is the creator of all heaven and earth and all people might know better about how to judge what is right and wrong with people, might know better what kind of rules fit with us and not laying all that aside. Laying aside the fact that even though we know what to do, he, even if you don't know all the rules in the in the Bible, that there's still things that he has written on every human heart that we can't escape. It, it it's laying all that aside. The way Tim Keller puts it is he says, we don't even keep we don't even keep our own rules. If we made up all the rules, we don't even keep those. He said, How do you know? Here's how you know. He said, Imagine that your whole life long, you had an invisible tape recorder that just hung around your neck. And it recorded everything you ever said. And so every time you ever said, so-and-so ought to do this, this is what they should do, this is what ought to be done in this situation, it would record that. And then, at the end of your life, I would take this tape recorder, and he'd play it back. And say, okay, these are the things that you agree with, because you're the one who said them, and you knew about them, because you're the one who said them and then hold that up against your life, none of us even do that. But why is it that we would know this is what should be done? I know it, and I agree with it. I'm the one who came up with this one. I think this is what should be done. And then when it's my turn to do that, I don't do it. Because it's not about just knowing. It's not just a mental thing. It's not an intellectual thing. This is an issue of the heart, and this this goes way deeper than just memorizing a list of rules or do's and don'ts. This goes into the heart of our problem of who we are as fallen people. Now, here's where this comes in to play in this particular scenario. Nathan comes to David, and he tells him this story, and David doesn't get it. It's beautiful. He tells him this story. There's a man who had this one... He's a poor man. He only has this one sheep. He loves it like a daughter. And there's this rich man. He's got so many sheep. And when he has somebody come to visit him, he doesn't take one of his sheep. He takes the one sheep, the only one this guy has. All right, David, you're the king. This happens in your kingdom. You're the one who gets to decide what happens. You're the one who decides what is right and just to be done. And David looks at the situation and says, this David burned with anger against the man and said to Nathan, as surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this must die. <laughs> David knows what's right. He knows that this guy should not be doing that sort of thing. And he knows that the penalty for what he has done should be the death penalty. That's what this guy deserves. That would be the just situation. And then he says, and he must pay for that lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. I love this. It's like the death penalty is not even strong enough. He still has to pay for it too. Going above and beyond that. Then Nathan said to David, you are the man. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel says, I anointed you king over Israel and I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave you your master's house to you. It goes on and on with how God has put him in such a privileged position. And yet, he has then used this to take Uriah's wife, to have Uriah killed, and all the problems that have gone on there. Now, I told you first we're going to be looking at a story within a story. So that's the story that Nathan told was of this man and a sheep. And it's a beautiful way of telling it because had Nathan just come to David and said, hey, I know what you did, and it was wrong. He may not have gotten past those initial defenses. But instead what he does is he comes and he says, hey, there's this guy. You're the king. Tell me what ought to happen. And now it's not personal with David. Now he can be objective, and he can apply the rule that he knows was right to this other guy. then Nathan turns it back on him says, you are the man. Now, I told you this is an unusual gift. The unusual gift in this scenario is Nathan. Nathan is the prophet whose name actually means gift. That's what it means in Hebrew. Nathan. Gift. And Nathan is a gift to David. Because how many people in your life are willing to do this to you? Probably not very many. Or if they do... <laughs> you don't consider it a gift. (laughs) To point out what it is where you're being inconsistent with what you think other people should do and then what you're actually doing. Is there anybody in your life who can point that out to you that you won't then push them away? Is there anybody where you would actually see that as being a gift to you? But it is. It is a gift to David. It is like a in AA, you know, the first step to recovery is admitting that you have a problem. If David doesn't understand that he has a problem, how is he going to get well? We also have an unusual response. If someone were to say this to you, my guess is the initial reaction is going to be one of defensiveness. Which that can take many forms. Start defending ourselves of, well, what I did wasn't really wrong. Or, well, if you knew all the circumstances, it wouldn't be as wrong as you think it is. Or, how dare you? <laughs> Who do you think you are? We have a lot of ways that we can defend and not actually have to face up with our own sinfulness and our own duplicity in that. But in verse 13... Nathan finishes speaking. Then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. That's the response. Now it's actually a much bigger response than that. That's the summary. But David is also not just a shepherd, not just a king. He's also a poet and a musician. So if you turn to the last page in your songbook there, we have Psalm 51. Psalm 51 is one of the few Psalms we have where it actually tells us not only who wrote it or who it's for or whatever, but it actually gives us the occasion when it was written. And so it says, Psalm 51, for the director of music, a psalm of David, when the prophet Nathan came to him after David had committed adultery with Bathsheba. This is where this psalm comes from. This is the context. We're going to go through it. I was going to say briefly, but I don't want to lie. We're going to go through it. We'll skip parts of it. And see how it is that David responds after getting this gift from Nathan. By the way, on that gift, I think of it like this. Nobody, nobody wants to hear the happy. Everybody to be super thankful to the doctor who catches it early. Right? If you went to the doctor and they found out that you had cancer and they said nothing and they let it continue, that's not a good doctor. But when they catch it early and there's still something you can do about it, we are grateful. And so here we have David responding, well. He doesn't want to hear it, he doesn't want to be caught in his sin, and yet he is. And he's thankful. And here's the the poem, the prayer. It begins with, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions, wash away all my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. Something very important here. First of all, is that word mercy? Is David admitting he has a problem? You don't ask for mercy unless you know that you deserve something bad. The story that Nathan told has gotten through David's defenses. And so David recognizes when he said that man should die and he should have to repay, he now realizes that his own finger is the one that's pointing back at him and saying, I should die. I should have to repay. That actually is just, and that actually is right. And I know it's true because I was the one who pronounced it true. So that is what should happen. And I recognize that now. And so he says, have mercy on me. Mercy is the—is God not giving us what we do deserve. Those bad things that we deserve, not giving. So when David says, have mercy on me, he's admitting his guilt. But then he says, and this is very important, have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. This is, we tend to have two problems when it comes to confession. The first is we don't admit it. We don't admit it fully. We don't admit it honestly. Instead, what we do is we start trying to justify and rationalize, and well, maybe it didn't do it all the way perfect, but it wasn't all bad. David's saying, no, it was all bad. But the second thing is that we tend to mess up on in our confession, is instead of saying, have mercy according to your unfailing love, we say, have mercy on me, let's make a deal. You don't give me the bad things I deserve this time, and next time I won't do this right? And we start making these deals, and I'll, I'll, I'll do better next time. And what we're doing is we're saying, have mercy on me, not according to your unfailing love, but according to my future performance. And let me just walk you through how this is going to work. If you're saying, have mercy on me according to my future performance, and then you fall again, what are you going to have to do now? Okay, not on this future performance, but on my next future performance.
1: Okay, not on this one, but on
0: my next one. And we keep kicking the ball down the field, we don't ever make it to perfection. And so when we're saying, have mercy on me according to my future performance, we're hopeless. But David doesn't do that. He doesn't make that mistake. Instead, he says, have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. And This uh, term for love that he uses here is actually the same thing that he's talking about when we looked a few weeks ago at how David treats Mephibosheth. Remember that one? Fun name. That grandson of King Saul, the one who was in the family that everybody would have considered to be David's enemies, now that David is the king. And so David reaches out to him, not to kill him, but to bless him and to restore him to position within the royal family. Even, And he says, I want to show God's kindness to this man. That's what it is. That's that same word, that chesed. That's a good word if you got a cold. Chesed. And he says that, that love that you have for your enemies, to reach out to your enemy and to bless them. Have mercy on me, according to that, God. And he continues. Verse 3, For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me against you. You only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. Just a quick note on that. Did anybody else, else kind of catch when you heard him say, against you, you only have I sinned? Catch anybody off guard a little bit? Anybody going, uh, excuse me, David, you forget about Bathsheba? Maybe sin against her? What about Uriah? Who you had murdered? You maybe sinned against him? And David says, against you, you only have I sinned. A very helpful place for understanding what's going on here. Actually, it comes in the New Testament. If you take a look in Uh, the book of Mark. It's chapter 2 where you'll know the story. You have four friends who bring their paralyzed friend to Jesus to be healed. Remember this? And it's too crowded and they can't get in the house where Jesus is teaching. And so what do they do? They go up on the roof and they dig the hole through the roof and they lower the man down right there in front of Jesus. And they are ready for Jesus to say, be healed. But he doesn't. He sees the man there says, son, your sins are forgiven. everybody freaks out. All the religious leaders start saying, who does he think he is? That he can forgive sins. Now, the reason they're thinking this is because this man, how has he, how has he sinned against Jesus? You can't forgive somebody's sins if they sin against somebody else. Right? So if I come over here and I start kicking Jimmy in the shin, over and over again, and then Dean comes over to me and says, it's okay, Joe, I forgive you. think Jimmy's okay with that? (laughs) Who do you think you are? You don't get to forgive that. Only Jimmy gets to forgive that. Only the person who's been wronged is the one who gets to forgive. That's who's been sinned against. And yet Jesus claims that every sin that this man has committed has actually been against Jesus. How so? Well, for that, we have to go all the way back to Genesis. We're going all over the place today. If you go back to Genesis, you see when God creates the whole world, and he has the Garden of Eden, and, and the whole thing looks and is set up in language that resembles a temple, with the Garden of Eden resembling like the Holy of Holies. And inside of that, he puts... people who he says he creates in his image. Now, there's a lot of discussion as to what exactly does that mean, and a lot of good things that can mean, but there's got to be at least one thing that it means that we can be sure of, and that is that every person somehow represents God, which means that the way that we treat people is a reflection of how our hearts are towards God. If you don't believe me, read Matthew chapter 25, when Jesus says, Jesus says, as much as you did to the least of these, so you did it to me. Or read 1 John chapter 4, when he says, whoever claims to love God and yet hates their brother is a liar. Because how we treat people who are here representing God shows how our heart is to God. Which means, every wrong that we do to other people is a sin against God. And so when David commits adultery with Bathsheba, when he sends Uriah out to be killed, all of this is because his heart is not right with God. And all of it is an acting on that heart not right with God. And therefore, he's able to treat people as less than those representatives of God. And therefore, everything that he does, he says, against you, you only have I sinned. and then evil was evil in your sight, and so you're right in your verdict, and justified when you judge. And he goes through this, surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. You desired faithfulness even in the womb. You taught me wisdom in that secret place. Cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter with snow. If you hadn't seen the front cover, this is what David is desperate for. It says, let me hear joy and gladness that the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Because in all of this, David recognizes there's nothing he can do. And in fact, we've already seen him try it. What David had done after his initial uh, fall into temptation was to try to, you know, cover it up, to smooth things out, where it's not going to cause too many problems down the road people finding out and all. And what he found out is that he couldn't fix it. And he couldn't cover it up. And all of his trying to fix it and trying to cover it up is like trying to wash a window clean using greasy rags. It's not going to work. You can wear yourself out doing it, but it's not going to get it clean. And so finally David just says, you're going to have to do this. It created me a pure heart. He says, I was sinful from birth. Every part of me, there's not a pure motive in me. Then he goes on. Then I will teach transgressors your ways so that sinners will turn back to you. Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God. You who are God, my Savior, and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. Open my lips, Lord, and my mouth will declare your praise. You do not delight in sacrifice or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart you, God, will not despise. May it please you to prosper, Zion, to build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in the sacrifices of the righteous in burnt offerings and offered whole. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. He mentions sacrifices quite a bit here. And whether God delights in them or not delights in them, all that has to do with it is going through the motions or actually obeying out of a sincere heart. It's like we talked about at the beginning. You know, the, There's a difference between then sings my voice and then sings my soul. And he's saying here, God does not delight in voices that are pretty, but he delights in songs that are sung from the soul, from the heart. They're really rejoicing in God. The same thing with the sacrifices. He says, it's, yes, God has commanded the Israelites to carry out these sacrifices, but it's not the sacrifices that he wants, it's their hearts. And as long as they are offering these sacrifices, even exactly according to the letter, if their hearts aren't in it, they are worthless. And so he says, my sacrifice is a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart. I am having actual real sorrow over what I have done. If I could go back and undo it, I would in a second. This heart, with this attitude, it says the sacrifices will be pleasing to God again. We all know the difference between somebody who's going through the motions or not, whether it's, you're a boss and they're an employer, you're a coach and they're a player, you, you know the difference. Why would we think God wouldn't? this time we're going to do something weird. I'm going to give you a strange gift. We talked about this at the very beginning. This was about a painful healing. David did not want to be confronted with his sin. When he was, and there were still consequences to follow, we're not going into all that right now. But when he was, that was the road to healing. So, what we're going to do, giving the opportunity for us to find that same painful healing, I'm going to give you that same strange gift. An opportunity to face where you are, the ways that you have turned from God, the things you've done that maybe you've been carrying around and wanting to confess maybe you had to get cleaned up first. So what we're going to do is just together we'll read aloud through this psalm again. But this time with heads bowed and praying this psalm personally. And we'll go through it slowly so don't rush it. So that you're able to have that time of reflection and the ways in which these words that applied specifically to David's uh, situation. You might be able to find those connections between uh, where he was and where you are. We'll pray this. i have a few more words. Let's pray. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions. You taught me wisdom in that secret place. Cleanse me with hyssop, and I will be clean. Wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins, and blot out all my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain you. Then I will teach transgressors your ways so that sinners will turn back to you. Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed You who are God, my Savior, and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. Open my lips, Lord, and my mouth will declare your praise. You do not delight in sacrifice, or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. You, God, spies. May it please you to prosper Zion, to build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in the sacrifices of the righteous, burnt offerings offered whole, and bulls will be offered. the book, You Are What You Love, I mostly like the title, I think it goes a bit too far, but anyway, there's a section where he talks about uh, seeker churches, and there's this whole movement that happened, really starting in the 80s, um, where churches tried to strip away anything that might make seekers uncomfortable. And one of the things that they took away was confession because who wants to come and confess? <laughs> and so a time of confession was taken out. However, well, he says it feels like the very opposite of being sensitive to those who are seeking. He says, what if the opportunity to confess to confess is precisely what we long for? What if an invitation to confess our sins is actually the answer to our seeking? And what if we want to confess our sins and didn't even realize it until given the opportunity? In other words, What if confession is, unwittingly, the desire of every broken heart? In that case, extending an invitation to confession would be the most sensitive thing we could do, a gift to seeking souls. I do think that confession is very powerful. (laughs) And it is unburdening, it is freeing to be able to be honest before God and say, this is who I am. very briefly and take you to just the first chapter of Matthew because in the first chapter of Matthew we have Bathsheba almost showing up again we have this whole list of names so and so the father of so and so and in verse 6 it says and Jesse the father of King David David was the father of Solomon whose mother had been Uriah's wife Could have just skipped over that. Matthew could have just left that out and just been. And David had Solomon, and Solomon. Keep going. He puts this in there. He leaves this in there. This story of David's sin, Bathsheba, and then doesn't just say, "His mom had been Bathsheba," but actually Uriah's wife, pointing out how doubly wrong this whole thing had been. So we have that mention again in the New Testament. The sin runs through the whole line. However, what is this line that is going on? Is this is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And goes through the whole line until we get to Jesus who is called the Messiah, the anointed one, the one who is chosen by God. Chosen for what? <laughs> David also was anointed, I was the Messiah. He was anointed, he was chosen to be the king over Israel. What was Jesus anointed for? What was he chosen for? What was he the Messiah? What does that mean? A little bit later in the chapter, an angel comes to Joseph. verse, um, Verse 20 and 21, But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son and you are to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. We need confession. But confession by itself is not enough, but we need salvation. (laughs) And so the gift that we have is not only the ability to confess and to admit honestly who we are, but also the assurance that what we have on the other side of confession is true forgiveness. That when we say, have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, we can look to the cross and see his unfailing love on display for us. When David (laughs) prays, Restore to me the joy of your salvation. That is what ought to follow the end of every amen of prayer of confession. Knowing that we have been. And we are those who receive mercy according to his unfailing love provided for us in Jesus. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.